it never ceases to amaze me. I want something, I pull out my phone, I find that something online, I read all the different reviews, all the different price points, I find the best price point, the best review, I click buy now, and within two hours, that something can be at my doorstep. Isn't that amazing? I don't have to go anywhere. All I do is pull out my phone, and within two hours, that something can be on my doorstep. It shows up in one of these nice packages that most of us are familiar with. Amazon delivers. This is, I, I'm thankful for Amazon fulfillment, that they are able to fulfill what my request at my demand. That's the culture that we live in, whether it's Amazon delivers or whether you've been in one of those conversations and you don't know the answer to the question, like you you know, you're having one of those conversations and everyone's like, I'm not sure, I can't, we should know that, but I can't remember. So you pull out your phone. Hey Siri, who is Yada? And it tells you. Amazing, it fulfills, it delivers just like that. That's the culture that we live in. Instant satisfaction, instant delivery, instant fulfillment. What you want, you get. And this has certainly affected the way that we view God, has it not? I mean, we would be foolish to assume that the culture that we live in doesn't have any impact on how we view God. I think some of us live, and most of us probably wrestle with this idea of religious fulfillment. We think that if we follow God, he will deliver to us what we want. If we follow God, he will give us the desires of our hearts. Or if we follow him well, right? I mean, maybe we have this kind of conditional relationship with God subconsciously in our mind. We know that this isn't right. We hear every week as we gather that the gospel isn't about your performance and it's not about your merit. But I think subtly we, we, be, we believe this lie and partially it's because of the culture that we live in. Partially it's just because of the human heart. We believe in the lie of religious fulfillment that if we live the way that God wants us to live, then we are going to get what we want instantly. And God certainly has conditions in Scripture that if you live this way, generally that'll produce this type of fruit. But I think oftentimes we apply this to how we view God and how we view the gospel, religious, the, the subtle myth of religious fulfillment. If I make God happy, if I do what God wants me to do, then God will grant me my wish. He will give me what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And we certainly know from reality that that's not true, right? And we, we see in this text that that is not true. This text that we're going to look at this morning is all about fulfillment. It's all about God's fulfillment. But it's different than our culture's understanding of fulfillment. God's fulfillment is far less about circumstance and much more about Christ. What we're going to look at this moment, this morning as we look at this text is, what does it look like for us to believe that God fulfills, that he satisfies, that he meets, that he delivers on our needs, even when the circumstances don't match? This is Addie Tweeten. She is a member of our church. Some of you know Nate and Maria Tweeten. They usually sit right about here. They're not here this morning because they're at the hospital with Addie. This picture was taken this morning. By the way, the Finchers are here, and William is doing great. He's home. Praise God. Praise God. The Finchers had a son a couple weeks ago, and he was in the hospital, hooked up like this for quite a while. Addie was born premature, and for the first month of her life, she was in the hospital, hooked up, and they eventually got to take her home. And this weekend, she contracted pneumonia, and so now she's in the third-choice hospital because the first two had no options for them. 
And so Nate and Maria right now are at the hospital with Addie. Let's pause and pray for them. God, we thank you that you have created technology, that, that Addie can be intubated, that she can, she can have these devices hooked up to her to help her breathe and to help her get the junk out of her lungs. And that you work through doctors and nurses who are skilled to care for suffering people. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to use the doctors, the nurses, the technology to bring Addie back to healing. Lord, we pray that you would bring her back to health and healing. And we ask this morning that you would minister to Nate and Maria. That, that in the midst of their frustration, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of this, this momentary affliction, this suffering that they are enduring, that they would know that you are good and that you are near. I pray that the reality of this text this morning, that, that you fulfill us in Christ, would be the reality for them. And for each one of us, Lord, we know that our circumstances don't always fulfill, they don't always deliver what we want. So may you, may you lift our eyes and our hearts to trust in you this morning as the fulfillment of all that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The big idea in this text this morning that, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan and your personal journey. God's cosmic plan and your personal journey. God is fulfilling this, this cosmic, universal plan. We see that in the scriptures, and we're going to look at how God fulfills this as we go through the scriptures in just a minute, but there's three examples of God fulfilling cosmic plan here in the scriptures. The word fulfill is used three times, and it's, it's all about hundreds of years before when prophecies were happening, when certain things were happening on the stage of world history, and Jesus came and he fulfilled God's cosmic plan. Jesus continues to be the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan. What's happening around the globe? What's happening in different eras, what, what's happening throughout history is being fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. But also, what's happening in your life, on your personal journey, small, individual, you, what's happening there, God is trying to work through your circumstance, through your personal journey, to fulfill his plans and his purposes, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the centerpiece to our understanding world history and to understanding our daily reality. If, if you're confused about, about wars and rumors of wars around the world and confused about the small details of your life and, and the, the painful details of your life, right? I mean, we've had families who have had children in hospitals recently and that, that's a hard daily reality to wrestle through. But church, what we're going to see this morning is that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 11 or 12, we can it's 12. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we trust him to be the fulfillment of God's plan, this cosmic plan, this cosmic reality in which we live and all of the chaos and all of the lack of understanding that we have personally for this cosmic world and the lack of understanding that we have for our personal journey, our personal circumstances, begin to take shape as we look to Jesus. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, but he's not the fulfillment that we've grown culturally accustomed to. He's not a fulfillment for our 
certain well, he is the fulfillment for our certain circumstances, but he doesn't necessarily fulfill each circumstance in the way that we would want. Here's what fulfillment means. It means to bring to completion, to realize, to deliver, or to satisfy. That's what Amazon does, right? Amazon fulfillment, that's what they do. They bring to completion your order. They realize your order. They deliver your order to your doorstep. They satisfy your needs, your desires, your wants. You get what you want, when you want it, how you want it within a couple hours. That's how our smartphones work. It needs some information. Siri, boom, gets us the information instantly. See, it's interesting here. If we look at this passage, the word fulfillment is used three times. And if we understand it in the Greek, we understand that it means the same thing. See, sometimes we can trust our English translations. They did a great job. And so when this text tells us, talks about fulfillment, it's actually saying that Jesus is the one who brings completion. He delivers He realizes God's plan. He realizes our plan. He satisfies our deepest needs. The the longing desires of our heart. He brings all things to completion, both in the cosmic scale and the personal daily journey. And so there's three examples of how Jesus is a fulfillment here in this text. I want to go through and look at each one of them. The first one is in verses 13 through 15. Now, we remember as we've been studying the book of Matthew, this is a familiar Christmas story. Last week, um, last week we had the wise men come and they visited Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And remember, they interacted with Herod and Herod said, go find Jesus and after you worship him, come and tell me so that I could worship him. Last week, we talked about who Herod was, that he was this paranoid ruler, king, and so he was paranoid about Jesus, these prophecies about Jesus coming to be the king of the Jews. And so Herod wanted to know where Jesus was so that he could snuff out this potential threat. Herod was ambitious to rule and suspicious of others. He was a paranoid ruler. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning is that the wise men went and they visited Jesus. They gave him gifts. They, they bowed down in humble worship of him. And then they aligned their lives with him. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So that's where last week's story kind of ended. So these wise men went another way. They didn't go back to Jerusalem to tell Herod where Jesus was. Pick it up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, they had departed, they went their other way, back to their homeland without telling Herod, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Here's the first fulfillment. Jesus is the true son of God who is forced to live as a refugee in Egypt. See, the wise men didn't go back to Herod and tell Herod where Jesus was. And and Herod knew that that at least people thought that this new child, Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph, was the messianic king of the Jews. But Herod was currently the king of the Jews, and this is a position that Herod loved that Herod did not want to give up. In fact, he killed a few of his own sons and one of his wives for suspicion that they were going to overthrow him and take over his throne. And so Herod's response here to kill all of the baby boys in the region is not out of character for Herod. 
It's completely in character for Herod, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. But the point of this passage here is to show us that Jesus is the true Son of God, who, like Israel, the the metaphorical Son of God, was sent into Egypt as a refugee. Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Where, where the prophet Hosea is recounting how Israel was led into and out of Egypt. And so this passage here, what Matthew is doing, Matthew in a brilliant way, if you remember in the previous weeks, we, we saw that Matthew in a brilliant way is helping us to understand that Jesus is a new beginning. That in Jesus there's this new covenant, this new era that we live under. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy. That word genealogy translated back into Greek is Genesis, and that means the beginning. Same thing with verse 18. Now the birth, that's also Genesis, the beginning of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew, in the first couple books of his gospel here, is trying to help his readers to understand that in Jesus there's, there's new life, there's new birth, there's a new beginning, and he's reminding us of how God led Israel, his son, into Egypt. He led them into Egypt to escape death by famine. Now he has led Jesus, his true son. So Israel is God's metaphorical son. We are adopted into God's family. We talk about that here at Park Community Church, that we are sons and daughters of God, and we really are. He's adopted us. In Israel, in the same way in the Old Testament, God uses this familial language of Israel, that they are my son. And so God led his son, Israel, into Egypt to protect them from death in a famine. Now God has led his his literal son, Jesus, his one and only true son, into Egypt to protect him from death. This is an incredible parallel that Matthew is making here to the people of old Israel going into Egypt and Jesus, his son, coming into Egypt. Not only does Jesus create a new path for his people to walk on, but he walks the old dusty trail that the Old Testament saints walked on. Think about that. Jesus identifies with what his people went through for centuries. He's sent into Egypt as a refugee. He's a displaced refugee. Remember that as we think about our own policies, and we're not going there this morning, but remember that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they're Jews from Nazareth, from Bethlehem. They are sent by threat of the king by danger of death into an unknown culture seeking asylum. And so they go and look at this comparison. Look at what what Matthew is doing here. So Israel, God's son, this imagery of Israel being God's son, Jesus is God's actual son. Look at this comparison. I love this. Matthew wants us to see that that Jesus is this new king. He's giving us a a, a new era, but he's also walking the path of those who have gone before him. So Israel is led to Egypt to escape death, death by famine. Jesus is led to Egypt to escape death, death from Herod. Pharaoh kills Israel's sons. If you remember back to the Exodus story, Pharaoh was killing Israel's sons. Remember? Remember how Moses became Moses? He was put into a basket and in a river to to be hidden from being killed by Pharaoh and his men because Pharaoh was nervous, just like Herod. Herod is nervous, he's ambitious and suspicious, therefore he becomes paranoid about somebody rising up and taking his rule and reign on the throne. Same thing with Pharaoh. 
The Israelites were, were in Egypt as slaves. God had sent them there to preserve them through a famine. They're there as slaves. And, and Pharaoh becomes nervous as they're growing in number. They're multiplying as God had commanded them to do, be fruitful and multiply. They're multiplying and Pharaoh becomes nervous that one of, one of their kids is going to rise up and overthrow his throne and his rule. And so Pharaoh kills the Israelite baby boys. Same thing, Herod kills the Israelite baby boys in Bethlehem. God's son, Israel, is called out of Egypt after being there for 400 years. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are called out of Egypt after being there for a much shorter amount of time, but they were there, and God called them out of Egypt back to his land, back to the land of the Jews. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember the story? Wandering the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, the true son, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting, preparing for his ministry. Israel crossed the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Church, you see what Matthew is doing here? He's showing us how glorious and amazing is King Jesus. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Jesus fulfills Old Testament imagery. Jesus is a typology fulfilling Old Testament Images and types and shadows, Jesus is the substance. As the book of Hebrews tells us that we studied, studied maybe a year ago, that, that there are shadows, but Jesus is the substance. The Old Testament is a shadow. The prophecies, the, the, the things, the outworking of the Old Testament is shadows casting light of the substance, Jesus. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan. All of this stuff that is happening in the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus, the Messiah. But he's also the fulfillment of the daily reality, of our personal journey. Jesus is fulfilling in Mary and Joseph what they needed. God is sustaining them through Jesus. That's the first area of prophecy, of fulfillment that we look at. The second one comes in verses 16 through 18. And I want to summarize this as Israel weeps again over the pain of suffering caused by godless rulers. Let's look at it. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. He sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what's, what's happening here? I mean, the, the reality of the story is that Herod, Herod in paranoia, Herod, in an effort to protect his own rule and reign, protect his own kingdom, to pursue his own idol, orders the execution of all the baby boys in this region two years and under because Jesus would have been about that age based off of what the wise men had told Herod when they saw the star, when these signs started. And so this, this is a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? If Jesus is the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan and, and our earthly reality, we understand how God is being good to Mary and Joseph, leading them out of Egypt. As I wrestle with this text, I wonder, but what about those who are left? 
What about those families who Herod's men marched into their homes and took their one and two-year-old boys and slaughtered those boys in front of their faces? And somehow Jesus is the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan. And where, where was God here protecting those children and those families? Well, a couple things that I, that I want to notice here. Notice in verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. The first two fulfillments in, in the book of Matthew, it says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Look there with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the first fulfillment prophecy in Matthew, and then flip over back to Matthew chapter 2, the one we just looked at, verse 15 of chapter 2. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You notice that those first two fulfillment prophecies say that the Lord had spoken. These, these good prophetic fulfillments are spoken and decreed by the Lord. And, and I think it's interesting that Matthew doesn't say in verse 17 that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. I mean, God is sovereign. God rules over all things, but I think there's a mystery here to God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. The, this text, it seems to show us, look at verse 16, as Matthew writes it, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under. This was to fulfill the prophecy of what Jeremiah had spoken. There's, there's a tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign over all things, and yet Herod, in his own free choice, and in his own sinful rebellion, chose to have these children slaughtered. I don't know exactly what to do with that or what to make of that, other than I think we need to keep that tension in mind as we wrestle through. Why do, why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering in the world. Well, we're broken, and there's sinful people in the world who unleash on others in their sin, in their idolatry. Now, ultimately, what's happening here, the, the prophecy, the fulfillment here, is uh, it's alluding to this prophecy. It was spoken by Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 17 through, kind of through the end of the chapter, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What, what's going on there? What is Matthew getting at by bringing up this prophecy? Well, Ramah was a, was a small little village just outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem. That when, in the Old Testament, when, um, when Babylon surrounded Jerusalem, and took them into exile. They surrounded Jerusalem for about a year, and they, they broke down the city wall, and they, they pulled the Israelites out of Jerusalem. They brought them to Ramah. They chained them up in Ramah. They slaughtered some of their kids. They, the Babylonian Empire slaughtered the Jews, the Israelites. In Ramah is where they chained them up and then took them into exile back to Babylon. So what Matthew is doing here is saying this, this is the similar weeping, the similar tragedy, the similar type of suffering that God's people have experienced before. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah is talking about how, how God's 
people wept as they were dragged away into exile. Rachel, weeping for her children. Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob. She's the figurehead mother of Israel. She died giving birth to her son, Benjamin, who she wanted to name Benoni, which means I weep, I mourn. And Jacob, her husband, after she died giving birth, renamed him Benjamin. The Bible's interesting and weird. God's people are messed up. That's good for us, good news for us. Rachel is the, the figurehead mother of Israel. And so there's this, there's this belief in Israel, and we read about this in the Old Testament and other places where Rachel was perpetually weeping over her children, over Israel. It's this imagery that when in the Old Testament, when the people, when the Israelites were taken from Jerusalem to Ramah and chained up and slaughtered and brought into exile, Rachel, Rachel the, the mother of that nation, the mother of those children, is weeping. She's mourning for her descendants. And here Matthew is, he, he knows that his readers here in the first century knew these stories and, and understood this. And so he's, he's reminding them that now in Jesus, there's this, there's this new tragedy, this new suffering, this new execution of godless rulers to God's people. See, God interacts with our tragedy. God interacts with our suffering. Jesus enters into our suffering. He enters into our tragedy. God is fulfilling this cosmic plan in Jesus and also the day-to-day -day reality. See, we don't know what happened with the families who lost their kids. We don't know how God ministered to them and met them in that brokenness. I mean, we, we see this story through the lens of how God was working in Mary and Joseph. And we know that God showed up to Mary and Joseph through dreams and through visions and through wise men and through shepherds and through Simeon the prophet and through Anna the prophetess and spoke words of truth and comfort and direction to them. God revealed his plan to Mary and Joseph and he also met them on their daily journey. We don't know how God did that to those who were left back in Bethlehem whose sons were killed at the hand of Herod. But we don't know that God didn't appear to them in dreams, in visions, in shepherds, in wise men, in prophets and prophetesses. If you've ever been through suffering, through tragic, heart-wrenching suffering, it's very likely that God met you in that place through his people, with his word, with good gifts. So the question is, do we, do we trust God in the season of suffering? third area of fulfillment. We move on to the next passage, and I'll summarize this by saying Jesus is the branch of Jesse, a new tree giving fruit, shade, and blessing to the nations. Let's look at it, and I'll explain to you what this means. But when Herod died, okay, so they've been in Egypt avoiding the rule and reign of Herod because Herod would kill baby Jesus if he had the opportunity when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. There, God is again speaking through signs and dreams and wonders. Speaks to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph's thinking, yes, we can go back home. We can go back home. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in the place of his father Herod. So this is Herod the Great's son, Herod the paranoid ruler. His son is now 
ruling and reigning, and his son is similar. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city Nazareth that was spoken about by the prophets that what might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so Mary and Joseph, let's just try and wrap our minds around the God fulfilling his cosmic plan in Jesus, but also the personal journey. Think about Mary and Joseph's personal journey. Remember, she's, she's a teenager who gets pregnant from the Holy Spirit out of wedlock. She's from a small little town, Nazareth, where everyone knows her name, where everyone's probably suspicious of this pregnancy. Did Joseph and Mary really not sleep together before marriage? Did Mary sleep with somebody other than Joseph? There's all this suspicion. They have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem for the census. So as a pregnant mom, she hops on a donkey and travels to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn, so they have to stay in like a cave stable, that's where Jesus is born. If you're a mom who's had a kid, put yourself in Mary's shoes. This is awful. How is God good making me go through this? How is he fulfilling what I need and want and desire by, by this baby Jesus? I'm in a cave giving birth and then, and then there's these animals around and then these shepherds, dirty shepherds with dirty hands likely show up and want to hold my baby and worship him. And then these wise men, these pagan astrologers from the east who don't believe in the God of the Bible, who don't trust Yahweh, they show up and want to worship my baby. This is just weird, is it not? Put yourself in Mary's shoes and Joseph sitting on watching this. And then after this happens, a dream, right after the wise men leave, a dream and Herod's going to kill your son. Get up and go. And I glossed over this, but look in verse 13. Let's go back up here. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother when? Right. I want some of you to look at this and say it back to me. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. Like this is instant. They are sleeping. And if you have a young infant, if you've ever had a young infant, you know how precious sleep is. Joseph is woken in a dream and God says, go now. So he packs up Mary and baby Jesus and whatever they have, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, onto their donkeys. And in the middle of the night, they leave Bethlehem and head to Egypt. Are you kidding me? This is inconvenient, to say the least. And so they get to Egypt and somehow somebody welcomes them in, in as foreigner, foreigner refugees and they stay there for a while and now the word has come back, Herod is dead. Joseph says, yes, we can finally go back home. And they pack up, they're headed back home and as they're heading back home, another dream. Well, well, he gets word that Herod's son is ruling and reigning and in a dream he's told not to go back to Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the, the safe places for the Jews. Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews. And so, verse 23, they go back to Nazareth. Who's from Nazareth? Mary. It's her hometown. It's a small town. It's a town where the rumor mill churns. They've been gone for a couple of years, and now Joseph and Mary are going to walk back into that small town with this baby who they had out of wedlock, who they blamed on God. I mean, just put yourself in their, in their shoes. This is how Joseph and Mary followed God. They're sent back to Nazareth, this little town where there's been rumors for years about Mary. Oh yeah, she left. We haven't seen her for years. She must, she, the actions fit the story. She must have ran away in shame. Oh, Joseph and Mary. Now they have to come back 
to Jerusalem. God is fulfilling his cosmic plan and leading them on their daily journey in an uncomfortable way for them. Surely, inconvenient ways. So they come back to Nazareth. And what we need to notice here, at verse 23, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets that he might fulfill. He shall be called the Nazarene. That prophecy isn't a specific prophecy from the Old Testament. Search as you will, there's not a specific prophecy that, that says that. And so what Matthew is doing here, he's, he's playing with words to help give us this image of how glorious and great Jesus is. Here's what he's doing. He is taking the Hebrew word for Nazareth is Netzir, and the Greek word is Nazareth. That's the name of the town that they moved back to. And then the Hebrew word for stick is Netzar, and in Greek it's Nazar. That might mean nothing to you right now, but remember, Nazareth is a small stick town. It's, you ever heard the phrase, oh, they're from the sticks? Literally, that's Nazareth. That's Nazareth. That's the town that Jesus was now raised in. That's the town that Mary and Joseph came from. The Bible continues to show us that Jesus serves an upside-down kingdom, that Jesus didn't come from a place of prestige and honor and glory, but he came from the backwoods, from the stick town. Matthew's playing with these words here to, to help his readers understand that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, this despised place. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. As this says that Jesse, Jesus is the branch of Jesse, a true tree giving fruit and shade and blessing to the nations. I think Matthew's doing something else. Other than trying to help us to understand that Nazareth is a small stick town, he's helping us to understand that Jesus is the branch of Jesse. See, here's an Old Testament prophecy that I think Matthew is pointing us to. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come from a shoot, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, Netzar, from his root shall bear fruit. This is the imagery here that, that Israel in the Old Testament, the kingdom and the kings and all that was built up has been chopped down. It looked like God's cosmic plan had been thwarted. But Jesus comes from Nazareth, the stick town, as the branch of Jesse, this new ruler, this new king who's going to bring blessing to the nations. He is the true tree. He is the, the branch of Jesse. He is the one who will grow up. And think about how often Scripture uses tree imagery. What does a tree do? Well, a good tree produces fruit that people can eat and be nourished by. This is Jesus. This is imagery of Jesus. That, that his life produces fruit that nourishes his people. What does a good tree do? It provides shade and shelter. You're ever out in a in a desert, in the sun, all you want is shade. This is Jesus. And it provides blessing to the nations. This is who Jesus is. This is what Matthew is getting at. Jesus comes to fulfill God's cosmic plan and also our personal daily reality. So a couple questions that I want to ask as we consider these things. The first one is will you follow God when his leading is inconvenient and uncomfortable? Certainly we saw Mary and Joseph do this, did we not? <laughs> this, this Christmas season, it's almost over. This, 
the next couple days, give some serious consideration to the inconvenience and the lack of comfort that Mary and Joseph had to follow God through in these first couple years of their life. And really think about it. Teenage pregnancy out of wedlock in a small town. As a pregnant lady, had to go to a different town, have her baby in a cave, move that baby in the middle of the night to a, another town in a different country with different language, different culture, beg somebody there for housing, stay there until the coast was clear, head back, couldn't even go to the prominent city where her people would live. She had to go back to Nazareth, her hometown, where people had been talking about her. And Joseph had to lead this process. And yet they followed God because they trusted, as God revealed to them that Jesus was his fulfillment for the cos- his cosmic plan, that Jesus would be a blessing to the nations, that Jesus would be good news for all, but also that Jesus would take care of them and that God would preserve them and that God would lead them through this journey, this daily journey that was filled with inconvenience and uncomfort. So church, will you follow God when his leading is inconvenient and uncomfortable in your life? I want to give you some credit. Many of you are doing this in many different ways and I want you to give yourself some credit. Think about your life. When you think about these questions, don't always assume that it's bad and I'm doing wrong. Think about some areas that, yeah, you know what? God, through his spirit, has empowered us to make some sacrifices and to actually follow him in some inconvenient and uncomfortable ways. I see that in you. Encourage that in one another. If you're in community, call that out in one another and say, hey, I'm so proud of God's work in your life. I see you giving up this comfort to follow him. I see you pressing into this inconvenience to follow him. We need to encourage that in one another, but we also need to continue to ask, where am I seeking convenience and comfort over God? I think it's double, double-sided coin for us, right? You know, I know our church. We have people who are opening up their homes for people to live in their homes, people to stay in their homes, people who are opening up their wallets to give to people in need, people who are living in lesser situations so that they can give more, people who are getting up in the middle of the night to serve people who are broken in the middle of the night. Someone calls you with depression or addiction and you're there. Praise God. You can acknowledge that. That is following God in inconvenient and uncomfortable ways because his spirit is working in us. But also, we're, we're inclined to seek convenience and comfort, are we not? To have things fulfilled for us in the way that our culture tells us right here, right now, in an instant. And so just do a little personal assessment. Where are you following God in inconvenient and uncomfortable ways and continue to surrender that to him? Thank him for giving you the grace to do that. And where are you seeking convenience and comfort at the expense of following God? And might, might he call you to release that? May he want to pry your hands off of that idol of convenience and comfort. Second question. Will you trust God in the midst of pain, suffering, and confusion? So we think about that second fulfillment in the text. There were, there were likely 25 or so boys killed based off of the population and the birth rate in that time. We don't know exactly how many boys were slaughtered by Herod. Somewhere between 25 and 40 based off population and birth rates. That's tough. The level of suffering in that town and in those families. And and Mary and Joseph, sure, God preserved Jesus, but they heard about it. I mean, can you imagine the the shame and guilt of living with, well, our son 
lived, but all of these baby boys from our town, our families, our friends, their kids died. Will you trust God in the midst of pain and suffering and confusion? Flip to Habakkuk chapter 3 with me. It's on page 787 in the Pew Bible. This is just a beautiful picture from a prophecy in the Old Testament of when things don't go well according to our earthly view and circumstances. Listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruits be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is what it looks like to trust God in the midst of pain, suffering, and confusion. We don't, we don't understand what God is always doing on this, in this cosmic plan and in our daily reality, in our daily journey. But church, will you trust that he is good in the midst of of heart-wrenching circumstances. Will you like Habakkuk say, though I, though I don't see the good on the surface, I will rejoice in God and I will take joy in the God of my salvation for he is my strength and he makes me run securely. This is what jo- Mary and Joseph did. This is what God empowers us to do through Jesus. Then last question to close out with. Will you trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's cosmic plan and your personal journey? We have two options when tragedy strikes. We look at the circumstances and we doubt and we question and we run from God, or we look at the circumstances and then we trust that God has this cosmic plan that he is working out for his glory, for our good, and for the advancement of his kingdom. Do you trust Jesus the man, the true son of God, to be God's fulfillment. God's fulfillment for what he's doing around the world through all time and also God's fulfillment in your daily life. Church, trust me. If you look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, the daily hard circumstances, you, won't, you still won't always understand them, but God will give you peace in them. Peace in them in Jesus. Let's close out with looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Page 944. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is saying that that if you are called to God, if you have placed your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, that circumstances may be non-ideal in your life, that God working out his cosmic plan in your daily reality may cause tension and friction and lack of understanding, but God is doing something to fulfill his cosmic plan in the world and in your life. He's working it out for good. Do you trust that, church? Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, cosmic and daily, personal. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at again. Lord, some of us in the midst of suffering and pain with questions and doubts, and Lord, we would be foolish to think that there are people today 
here who aren't seriously doubting your goodness and your grace. So regardless of where we're at this morning, I pray that you would meet each one of us there. Would you speak your gracious, tender voice of love into our ears and our hearts? May you empower us through your spirit to believe that you are the fulfillment, Jesus. You are the fulfillment. If we cling to you, nothing else matters. We can truly get through any circumstance clinging to you. And may we believe that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to your purposes. That may not mean that we see that good even here in this lifetime. But may we be a people who live for the glory of God, the good of those around us, and the advancement of your kingdom. I pray these things in your precious holy name. Amen.